Heart Christ community. My name is Karen Davis, and I'll be reading the word this morning. Um, it's Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Um, and in the blue Bible in front of you, that's on page 1001. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Please be seated and take a moment to reflect on God's word. Question for you this morning. <clears throat> How did you come to believe that God exists? Probably most of us, if not all of us in this room, would say, think or believe God exists, but... How did you come to the conclusion that God exists? Now you might say, well, I grew up in a religious home and, you know, we went to church and I guess I always believed God exists. But at some point, usually high school, college, you run into a person or a well-educated professor or a philosophy that challenges that, that thought. And as an adult, at some point you have to say, well, maybe I grew up this way, but what do I really, like, what do I think for myself? Why do I think God exists? Why, what's brought me to this conclusion? William Lane Craig, who's a pretty well-known Christian apologist, you can find him on YouTube debating various atheists. He says this, it's reasonable to believe God exists because God's existence is the best explanation for a wide range of facts from the human experience. So he's just saying, if we just look at the human experience and to try to answer the question, well, why is it this way? God tends to be the best explanation for that. Now, he's not even trying to necessarily get to Jesus in this argument. He's just trying to get you to think, do I really believe God exists? Is that reasonable? And he has a lot of examples. I'll give you a few. Lane says that God's existence is the best explanation for the existence of the universe. Just the fact that the universe exists, you've got to explain, well, how and why does it exist? And God, he thinks, is the best explanation. Sure, it's possible to believe that all matter and space-time in the universe, known universe, came from nothing. I mean, there are lots of people that believe that. There was nothing, and then somehow... There was something, and all that we know, including you, came from nothing. That's a possible belief, but you can see that there's, there's some challenges to that. Just how do you get something from nothing? That's at least one big challenge. And Lane says the fact that you can't really make that rational argument is at least one reason to believe, well, I believe God exists. There was something before all this. That preexisted all that, and that's God. Secondly, Lane says that God is the explanation for the fine-tuning of the universe, which allows for intellectual life. 
So not just the, the universe as we might know it, but it's fine-tuned in a way that allows life, our lives, to exist. And if you try to explain it in a different way, it gets complicated. And he thinks the best way to explain fine-tuning is that God exists. I don't know if you know these two names, two scientists, Francis Crick, James Watson, you know, what they discovered, the double helix of the DNA. And in 1953, they came into a pub in England and announced they had discovered the secret of life, this double helix that you and I know, know about called our DNA. It's the building blocks of humanity and in 1962, Crick won a Nobel Prize. And at Crick's death, one of his colleagues said at his funeral, Crick will be remembered as one of the most brilliant and influential scientists of all time. Crick, who discovered this double helix model of our DNA, realized it's too complex. It had, it had, there had to be some kind of designer and so this man, who's not a Christian, is trying to decide, well, now what am I supposed to do? How, how did this come about if I don't believe there's a God? So he wrote a book in 1981 called Life Itself, and he gave you his explanation, which is this. He believed that the incredible complexity of life made it unlikely for life to develop on earth by itself. So he arrived at something he called directed panspermia. It's going to be great for your Jeopardy moment. And it means that uh, an advanced life came and deposited their DNA on this plant, planet. And then over time, that DNA grew into humanity. Okay, so this is the finest scientist of all time. And I'm, I'm really not trying to make fun of him. He's got to figure out something He's discovered this thing to say it's way too complex for it to just randomly happen. I'm not a person who believes in a God, so I've got to come up with some way. So I believe in aliens, which I haven't also seen, who come and they plant their DNA on this planet and then millions of years go by and we're here. William Lane Craig would say, I think the best explanation for the fine-tuning is that there's a God. Third, and I could keep going, Lane says that God is the best explanation for the existence of objective moral values. So God is sort of the plumb line for humanity. He has, he has character, he has moral values, and humanity has to bump up against that to say what's right and what's wrong, because God sets the tone for that in his word. But if you take God away, then and it's all kind of you know, survival of the fittest, well, then who's to say? Who's to say what's right and wrong? You can't because there's no, no final objective line of reasoning. And so I had a conversation not, not too long ago with a man who was um, wrestling with these questions about the existence of God. And we were at a little cafe, me, him, and his friend. And I'm using sort of this dialogue with him about objective moral values. Where does it come from? What would he say? And our waitress kept circling the table during the conversation. And I thought, wow, she's just giving us extra attention. But she, she just very quickly would walk away, but then she'd just circle, you know, like a plane trying to land. 
And finally, it just, we all noticed it, and so we just stopped and, you know, looked up. How you doing? And uh, oh, I'm so fascinated by this conversation, I can't get away from it. And she said, I don't believe that there's a God, so I'm, I'm, I'm interested in how you guys are talking about it. And I said, okay, well, what I was saying is that if there's no God, there's no objective moral value. That's, that's right, that's right, she said. And I said, so y- you can't say what Hitler did was wrong. And she said, that's right, you can't. At least she was being honest, right, with her, her, her philosophical beliefs made it so she couldn't say anybody was doing anything morally wrong. She had preferences, sure, but she couldn't hoist those preferences on everybody else. And see, you get stuck, don't you? You get stuck where that feels like a position that's going to be hard to defend. But if there's no God, then you don't have a great defense for that. So Lane would say, really the best best explanation for everyone having a sort of a center core moral value is that God exists. Well, I, I could go on, but it's, it's good to circle back around every once in a while to, to just ask yourself the question, why do I believe God exists? It's particularly helpful for a parent of a middle school or a teenager because you know they're going to get out and they're going to run into the person or the philosophy that are going to come at it in a different way. So having that discussion, having that discussion for yourself, if you're, you're, if you're wrestling with that this morning, I would want you to stop me at the door afterwards and say I'd love to find somebody to talk with about that. Well, that leads me to the opening of our text here this morning. You notice that when we come to the book of Hebrews, the writer not only assumes that God exists, he assumes something even bigger, that God has spoken. So we're coming into it with the writer saying, I'm talking to people who believe God exists and that God has spoken. You see it in verse 1. Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke. He spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And then in these last days, which we are currently living in, he has spoken to us by his son. So God speaks. If you want to understand Christianity, the first thing you have to understand is that Christian believe, Christians believe that God exists and that God has spoken. That's, a, that's just a foundational understanding. And God speaking is like the connective tissue all the way through the Bible. It, it's, it's what carries the story of the Bible along. We know this in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. And how did he create? By speaking. Let there be light. That's how everything came into existence was through God's created voice. Genesis 3. Everything fell apart. Why? People didn't listen to God's words. He had spoken a truth and they were just saying... Now, did God really say that? Don't, don't you find yourself, you, you get most in trouble when you question, did God really say that? Genesis 3, the reason we have hope is God speaks. He comes back to the garden speaking. Adam, where are you? Aren't you so glad he doesn't come back throwing lightning bolts? No, he's speaking. 
He's communicating. He's trying to bring something back into relationship that was lost. And then he makes a promise that the seed of the woman is going to crush this evil that has been brought into the world. In a couple of weeks, and you'll know it because I'll be broadcasting it, my daughter is going to give birth to my granddaughter. It's somewhere between now and two weeks from now. Summer Lawless Keesler. And so I'll be absent for the next 12 to 18 months just taking care of her. Because <clears throat> my wife and I, it's not, and, and I know it's not really their baby. Right? It's our baby. No boundaries or anything like that. And so I'm going to put this little girl on my lap. And for the next 12 months, I'm going to make sure her first words are granddad. Right? Why, why am I going to spend... 12 months just staring at her going, granddad, granddad. Why am I going to do that? I want a relationship with her. I love her. I want her to know I know her name, and I want her to know my name. I want her to know that she's got an awesome granddad. That's the first thing I want her to know. That's the whole purpose, isn't it? I'm just trying to get some kind of communication lines open so we can have a relationship. God speaking is a signal that he's wanting a relationship with you. He not only exists, he speaks. And that speaking is a signal to you saying, I'm interested in you. Even if you've done the worst thing in the world and you've brought all of creation down with your stupidness, of not following God's word, I'm going to come back not with lightning bolts, with, but with questions. Hey, where are you? Would you want to come back? It's amazing. God has spoken. And it's a signal that he actually wants a relationship with us. And Isaiah, unbelievably, Isaiah says this about our relationship with God. For your maker is your husband. I mean, you know, Isaiah could have chosen anything he wanted. For your maker is Almighty God. I mean, he could have, but no, he chose the most intimate kind of relationship. The most face-to-face -face kind of relationship to say, that's the kind of relationship I'm looking for with you. So God is speaking. So then the real question is, are we listening? And you listen primarily by reading your Bible, praying, and if you don't have a good plan, don't wait till next January 1. It's still a long way away. There's some resources out on that table about reading through Psalms. You can join with us. There's some resources about Lent. You can pick up a devotional for the next 40 days and read through that, but find a plan, even if it's just five or ten minutes a day, to say, here, I'm just here to read, and I'm here to listen. So when you transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, what you find out from the Gospel of John is that the Word, what happened to the Word? It became flesh and dwelt among us. It's like, God, I'm coming closer, I'm coming closer. I'm going to get in your face somehow as God Almighty by putting skin on so that you can see me, that you could know me. And in verse 2, the Hebrew writer says, now that Jesus has arrived, it's the last days. He's the final word. We don't need another word. That would be a great distinction between us and a Mormon, us and a Muslim. 
See, they, they think there's another word, there's another book. And the Hebrew writer is saying, no, he, he's, he's it. He's the final word. Everything that's been written points to him, and there's no other word that you need because the word has become flesh. And what we see very fascinating in verses 2 and 3 is like a resume of Jesus. Like, why should we believe in Jesus? And the Hebrew writer is going to say, Jesus is better all the way through the Bible, all the way through his book, but he wants to set up right at the very beginning to say, hey, let me give, just give you his resume. Just like you're interviewing somebody, you just say, hey, let me just read your resume first, and then we'll have a conversation. And the Hebrew writer is just saying, let's just read Jesus' resume, and then we'll talk about how he's better. So look, let's look at this. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed, and here they are, heir of all things, through whom he created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He makes purifications for sins, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's his resume. That's a pretty good resume. He's, these seven things, interestingly enough, and I don't have time to talk about it, when, Jesus, when the writer goes on to say Jesus is greater than angels, he quotes all these Old Testament verses, and you can see it in, your, in the rest of the chapter 1. He has seven quotations. So he has seven affirmations of Christ and seven quotations from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the word seven, or the number seven, is the word of perfection, the number for perfection. So he's, he's crafting this in to say, in every way, Jesus is perfect. And I want to spend the rest of my time here just noticing these seven affirmations. The first two go together. He's the heir of all things, and he's what I'm going to say, the agent of all things. He's the heir of all things. He's the agent of all things, meaning all things were created through him, as it says. He's the heir and the agent. Colossians 1, Paul says this, all things were created through him and for him. Through and for, he's the heir, he's the agent. Revelation 22, Jesus says this about himself. I'm the alpha and the what? Omega. I'm the first and the, I'm the beginning. It's all the way through the Bible. I'm on the receiving end and I'm also on the giving end. I, I'm at the beginning and the end. Everything is, is about me. Everything's pointing to me. And so this very first affirmation is just interesting to me. Jesus is the heir of all things. He's the heir of all things. Now, he's the creator of all these things that he is the recipient of, but the writer is writing to people in pain, people who are suffering, people who are being persecuted. And this is the very first thing he wants to make sure they know. You, you people in pain, you people in persecution, you remember this. He's the heir of all things. So why is that important? And I thought John Piper said it well. What does it mean for us that Jesus in the end will have under his complete control and ownership all things? All land, water, fire, wind, energy, natural resources, nations, military might, buildings, bacteria, viruses, angels, demons, all spiritual and material beings, well, it means that he can make good on all his promises. 
If Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, he can make good on that promise because he's going to own the earth. If Jesus says nothing in all creation will separate us from the love of God, well, then he can make good on that promise because he controls everything in all creation. If Jesus says there shall no longer be death or mourning or crying or pain anymore, he can make good on that promise because he owns life and death itself. So I want you to know if you're suffering or you're in pain, Jesus can make good on his promise. He's so unique. He's the heir and the agent. You see another attribute. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And that's a way of saying he's not just the beginning and the end. He's in the middle right now. The reason I'm able to stand here. The reason you were able to get up this morning. You know why? The word of his power. You think about that. You woke up at five or six or seven or a quarter of nine and raced in here. You got up because you're being upheld right now by the word of his power. He's not just at the beginning and at the end. He's, he's everything in between. He's upholding all things. He's in control of all things. So if you're here today, you're here because he's upholding you. And what he'd want you to do is to listen and to know he's coming for you for a relationship. Next two affirmations, two ways of really expressing the same idea. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, and he's the exact imprint of his nature. Just two different illustrations, two different pieces of Jesus' resume. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's shining forth. God's existence. When you look at the sun, you can't separate the light from the planet itself. It's all one big event. Same thing with Jesus and the Father. Jesus is the exact imprint. In the Greek, this is the word character. And it's not a character quality. It's a character like an alphabet character. So if you think about the old printing presses, can you imagine them with the, the alphabet sort of being slid in? And then they would press down, and all the characters that were on this sort of black print would come down on a piece of paper, and they'd be the exact thing that was in the print. It's why when Jesus says, I and the Father, we're one. Remember when Philip, his, his disciples, says, show us the Father? And he says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You're looking at the exact imprint. You're looking at the, the glory of God's radiating presence. Finally, these final two affirmations, Jesus is moving from his identification to redemption. He made purifications for sin. This is the place where it's all important, but now we're getting involved. He's not here just to, to show God. He's here for a purpose, and, and his... His aim is you, his aim is me, to make purification for sins. If you had a, a digital copy of Hebrews, uh, this word purification would have a hyperlink. You know, what that, you know what that is, a hyperlink. You press on it and it goes somewhere else. 
If you press on this word purification, you go all over the Old Testament. And we'll get there as we go through Hebrews to see this, this theme that gets carried out. But let's just say for clarity now, it means all the sacrifices made before the final sacrifice of Jesus, they weren't enough. They were really just shadows pointing to a final sacrifice. All your efforts to be good, I hate to tell you, some of you, it's not enough. It's not enough. All the sacrifices are not enough. So Jesus had to come and make one final sacrifice that was enough, and that sacrifice was himself. And you know it's enough because of the final affirmation, he sat down. It's a way of saying, it's over. I've come to take care of a problem. I completely took care of it. I don't need to stand up. I don't need, I don't need help. I don't need assistance. I, I sat down. I'm saying on the cross, it's finished. I've paid the full price. So the Christian life, listen carefully, some of you all, is not about trying to get God to like you. That, that's not what it's about. Summer Lawless Keesler doesn't have to do anything to get her granddad to love her. She just has to exist. Jesus didn't die. To say, well, I've done my part now. You've got to do your part. Nope. We don't come and say, look what all Jesus did. Now go, go this week and do your part. Would that be good news? No, that'd be terrible. No, we can't do our part. Our part is to trust in his grace alone. That's our part. Some of, let me close with this. Some of you are familiar with the old hymn, Rock of Ages written by Augustus Top Lady. And it had a different title when he wrote it. Listen to it. It's a mouthful. A living and dying prayer for the holiest believer on earth. Okay, so I'm going to write a poem. It's going to turn into a song. And what I mean to communicate is that it's a living, it's a prayer for, for the living and dying who think they're the holiest believer on earth. So what he has in mind is somebody who might consider themselves holy or someone who spent their whole life hoping they've done good enough. And he has this stanza. <coughs> Listen. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. I, I can't do enough. No matter how hard I work, it's not going to be hard enough. Could my zeal no respite? No. See, even if your zeal for the Lord never rested, you were always fired up and wired up for Jesus, it wouldn't be enough. Could my tears forever flow? Even if you really could identify your sin and you were really sorry about it, it wouldn't be enough. For all, all for my sin could not atone. My efforts, my zeal, my tears, none of that is big enough to atone for my sin. 
Thou must save and thou alone. That's the good news. That's the good news. Jesus paid it all. And he sat down. So what about you this morning? How did you come to the conclusion that God exists? Do you think God exists? Maybe you're here and saying, I don't, I don't know. I need one of those conversations with Paul at a cafe. Hopefully we'll have a different waitress. Um, I'd welcome that conversation. But most of us probably know that. My second question then when, are you listening to the one who longs to have a relationship with you? Or are you trying to still be good enough? You go to bed just thinking, I hope God likes me today. Rock of Ages, final stanza. While I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. So hide yourself in Jesus. And because Jesus is better. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come and we just navigate our lives and trying to figure out if you exist and then how does that matter in our everyday lives. Would you uh, strengthen us by your word this morning that you, you have spoken, you long to have a relationship with us, you long to put us in your lap and help, you, help us understand how great you are, how much of a difference it can make in our worry, our anxiety, our anger, our fears, our frustrations. Would we see your resume and just say, you're enough. I don't have to be good enough. I don't have to strive for perfection and hope I've done my part. We can rest. Chains have come off. And I walk free in grace alone. Would you help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.